Well, it debuted back in the year 2003, and it was, a, it was a big hit for ABC. It was called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. They even did an episode locally that people, even from our church, were involved in. You remember the premise. They would find a family living in less than ideal conditions, and they would send the family away on a trip. Meanwhile, they would rally the community together to make over the entire house. When the family returned, they couldn't see the house because a bus would be parked, obscuring their view. When the, when the moment of the big reveal came with the cameras rolling, Ty Pennington would shout, and the house would come in full view. That sounds a lot like what Joseph's brothers will encounter here in part eight of our summer series on the life of Joseph called Bloom Where You're Planted. The brothers, you'll remember, had sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. There he was falsely accused of rape and consigned to prison. While in prison, Joseph encountered Pharaoh's butler. And the butler had a dream, and Joseph interpreted the dream, and it played out as exactly as Joseph had said. The butler eventually returned to his position as an officer of Pharaoh, and when Pharaoh had disturbing dreams which his wise men and his magicians could not interpret, the butler told him about a man in prison, a Hebrew who could interpret dreams. Joseph was summoned by Pharaoh and impressed the king of Egypt to the degree that he was given tremendous authority as he oversaw seven years of prosperity and seven years of consuming famine that would grip the land as was foretold in the dreams of Pharaoh. The years of plenty came and went and Joseph methodically stockpiled one-fifth of all the corn produced in the land and stored it in granaries in the cities. And now the time of deprivation had come. The dearth soon spread beyond Egypt into Canaan and to Joseph's family, who he had not seen in 20 years. So Joseph opened the storehouses and began to sell grain. People came from far and wide to buy from the seller of corn, Joseph. Joseph's brothers, all of them except Benjamin, were among those who stood before an Egyptianized Joseph, or Zaphnath Paania, as he was now known. And while he recognized them, they did not know him. They could not have imagined it was their long-lost brother who was this exalted ruler who stood before them. Zaphnath Paania was Joseph incognito. They did wonder why he asked such probing questions. He asked about their father. He, he inquired about their younger brother. They were bewildered and perplexed. Joseph accused them of spying, but he eventually sold provision to them but kept Simeon, one of the brothers, in prison while the others returned with instructions to bring their youngest brother back to Egypt to verify their words. 
That was puzzling enough. But then on the way home, they discovered the money they paid for the grain was back in their sacks. Upon arrival home, Jacob, their father, was less than pleased with the idea that Simeon had been detained and refused to allow Benjamin to go back to Egypt. And this is where our story left off last week. Joseph's identity was concealed. He was still incognito. But things were about to change. The big reveal was coming. Soon Joseph would be before his brothers in full view. This brings us to Genesis chapter 43. You can turn there. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, And the famine was sore in the land. The famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt on their first trip, the father said to them, Go again. Buy us a little food. But the brothers objected, knowing that they could not go back without Benjamin. Verse 11 of chapter 43. And their father Israel, or Jacob, said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best of the fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present. Carry the seller of grain a present, a little, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand, and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. Take also your brother Benjamin, and arise again, go to the man. Verse 14, and God Almighty Give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. They say desperate times call for desperate action. And so it is. Desperation can make you do things that you never thought you would do. Remember the story of the plane crash in the Andes Mountains where they eat all the other dead passengers. I mean, how hungry do you have to be? And we say we wouldn't, but we haven't been that desperate. And desperate times produce desperate actions. Jacob never thought that he would let go of Benjamin. But the alternative was for his entire family to starve. So off they went to Egypt. Once again, the entourage consisted of ten brothers. But this time, Benjamin went, while Simeon was still being held in the bowels of the Egyptian prison. Benjamin was the youngest, and Joseph's only full brother, both being sons of Jacob and Rachel. This explains Joseph's special interest in Benjamin. And it all leads to more mind games. As the brothers arrive for the second time in Egypt, after the long journey from Canaan, some 500 miles, they get in line to come before the seller of the grain. But Joseph sees them from afar off, and he sees that Benjamin is with them. Now I need you to, to uh, focus in on what I say and think about this. So he orders 
them, the brothers, to be taken out of line and brought to his house. Brought to his house. While he finishes his duty, duties for the day. And we pick up our story in verse 26 of chapter 43. When Joseph came home, they, the brothers, brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, and they bowed themselves down to him to the earth. Once again, by the way, I like to point this out, fulfilling Joseph's dream from way back in chapter 37 where this all began. Verse 27, and he asked them of their welfare, and he said, Is your father well? The old man of whom, the old man of whom you spake, is, is he yet alive? They answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes. He saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. His mother's son. Very important little statement there. And said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And and he said, God be gracious unto you, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered into his chamber, and there he wept. Verse 31, he washed his face, and he came out again, and he refrained himself. And he said, Set on bread. See, this is why I like the King James. (laughs) Set on bread. I'm going to start saying this around the house. (laughs) Set on bread, woman. (laughs) All right, that wasn't in there. That's in the Message Bible, the hippie version. I'm going to start saying that around the house. I like that, though. (laughs) Verse 32, And they set on for him by himself, and for them, the brothers, by themselves, and for the Egyptians, which did eat with him, by themselves. Because the Egyptians cannot eat bread with the Hebrews. That's an abomination to the Egyptians. Verse 33, And they sat before him, the firstborn according to birthright, And the youngest, according to his youth, and the men, the brothers, marveled one at another. And they took, and and Joseph sent messes unto them from before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times as much as any of the others. And they drank and were merry. Now let's, let's take a second here to put all of this into perspective. The eleven brothers of Joseph are eating in the house of the second in command of all the country of Egypt. The guy who's in charge of selling the food. And they must be sitting there completely baffled. Now to put this into perspective, okay? You read it, you hear about it, it's easy to lose it in the shuffle. But let's say your family goes to Washington, D.C., on vacation, okay? You and your family go to Washington, D.C., you're standing in line for the tour of the White House. When someone pulls you out of line and they bring you over to Mike Pence's house for dinner. Mike Pence is the vice president. 
Second, they're at a table, the brothers, with place cards, assigning each a seat. And the seats are arranged according to birth order, oldest to youngest. Yes, more mind games. I love the mind games. Joseph is messing with their heads. I love this part of the story. And if that wasn't enough, all the half-brothers get a portion of food, but Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, receives five times the amount of food as the others got. I'm sure they're, they're mystified. Chapter 44 finds dawn breaking the next day, and they're allowed to buy food, and they're sent on their way. But Joseph again, orders their money to be put back into their sacks. And for his own personal chalice, his silver cup to be stowed in Benjamin's sack. So the unsuspecting brothers begin their journey home. And as they get some distance down the road, they're apprehended by Joseph's men and told that Joseph's cup is missing. The brothers, of course, deny all culpability, and they emphatically say in the Bible, with whomsoever of your servants it be found, let him die, and the rest of us will be your servants forever. The Egyptians agreed, but tempered it a bit. They said, he whom the cup is found shall be my servant forever, and the rest shall be blameless. And the search begins. Once again, they search from oldest to youngest. Money is found in each sack again, for which they have no explanation. And then Joseph's silver cup is discovered amongst Benjamin's gear. And now they know they're in trouble. In fact, the Bible says in verse 13 of chapter 44 that all the brothers rent their clothes and they were taken back to the city. Now they stand before Joseph, who again speaks harshly to them and through an interpreter, and he says, what is this you have done? What is this you have done? The head games are interesting, and they're not without purpose. Why would Joseph put his cup in Benjamin's bag? Let me give you three reasons this morning. Number one, it was a reason, first of all, to bring them back to Egypt. So the cup in, in, in Benjamin's bag was a reason to go get them and to bring them back to Egypt. Number two, to see how they treated Benjamin, Joseph's only full brother. He had received five times the portion of food as the others. Now the silver cup was in his sack. How would the brothers react to this favored one. Number three, to see if the brothers would support each other or turn on each other. I wonder if God ever allows things to happen in the church to test, to see how we treat each other. Do we support each other or do we turn on each other? It's been said the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. I'm not sure about that statement on a number of levels, but it's enough to make you think. The brothers of Joseph 
would pass the test. It's here in the story where Judah, one of the brothers, steps to the forefront. The silver cup, hear me now, church, the silver cup in Benjamin's sack represents sin. And Judah is willing to pay the price for Benjamin's transgression. He pleads on behalf of his brother to Joseph. He explains how their father's life is wrapped up in Benjamin as the only remaining son of his true love, Rachel. And Judah graciously offers himself as ransom for his brother. Keep me, he insists, and let Benjamin return to his father. It's interesting that while Joseph is a type of Christ, we've said that in weeks prior, the messianic line actually runs through Judah. Jesus is known, after all, in the Bible as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here Judah becomes a type of Christ, offering to pay the price for the sin of Benjamin. Judah seems to have a tender conscience. It was Judah back in chapter 37, way back at the beginning of our story, where the brothers were contemplating killing Joseph, and it was Judah who convinces them to spare his life and instead sell him to the traveling caravan of the Midianites. It all sounds like a bad episode of Dateline. (laughs) Which, as I told you before, is... Ten minutes of TV crammed into two hours. And when I said that to my wife, she says, oh, you mean like football? (laughs) So in Judah, we see a conscience awakened. The word conscience means with knowledge. Con means with knowledge. Science means knowledge with knowledge. Knowledge, your conscience is the part of your soul that attaches itself to the highest standard of good that we know. But your conscience can become hardened. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Seared means to, to render insensitive. It becomes like like scar tissue, it's without feeling. Let me give you five signs this morning of a dulled conscience. Let me give you five signs of a seared conscience. Number one, it's hard to pray and open the Word. The Word will keep you from sin, it's true. But know this as well, sin will keep you from the Word. When you are not living right, it's hard to pry open your Bible. Number two, these are the five signs of a, of a dulled conscience. Number two, it's hard to have quiet time. Any meditative time is unpleasant for the person whose conscience is seared. The hardened conscience wants background noise. The hardened conscience wants busyness because it's in the quiet times when the still, small voice of God has the best chance to be heard. Number three of the five signs of a seared conscience, a restless spirit. It makes sense, doesn't it? For there's a distant battle raging deep 
within the heart of the sinner. No matter how cold, no matter how hardened a person is, there are times when they sense a stirring deep within. It may be at a funeral or it may be during a time of adversity. It might be when their head hits the pillow at night and sleep is slow in coming. Sinner, hear me. You may, you may be able to hide from it. You may be able to disguise it or run from it for a while, but the fact remains, there's a restlessness deep within your spirit. Though it may not seem like it, your conscience is a wonderful gift pointing you back to the will of God. The five signs of a seared conscience. Number four, they're angry with the righteous. Acts 7, Stephen was about to be stoned and his murderers didn't want to hear from him. They made the mistake of asking him any last words. And Stephen recounts the history of Israel. They, he gets to a certain point and the Bible says they stop their ears. Like a little kid. I don't want to hear the immoral, hear me church, the immoral have no place for the ramblings of the moral. The virtuous are a thorn in the side of the depraved. They're angry with the righteous. Number five, they're angry with God. These are people with a seared conscience. When we violate our conscience, we're unhappy with ourselves. Our discontent eventually comes out sideways in the form of anger. And we have to find somebody to be angry with. That's when we begin to ask all the questions that insinuate that we're blaming God. Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Somehow everything bad ends up being God's fault. Every soul has a conscience. Ignore it and it sort of goes away. But listen to it and it stays tender. What does a tender conscience look like? Let me give you four signs of the tender conscience. Number one, it's pure. Titus 1.15 says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Immoral people take something innocent and turn it into something dirty. The tender conscience, however, is pure. Number two, it's soft. A tender conscience is easy to be entreated. The Bible says in James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. A tender conscience is soft and approachable. Number three, a tender conscience is filled with the Holy Spirit. A tender conscience hearkens Unto the Spirit. A tender conscience listens to the Spirit. A tender conscience is in tune with the Holy Spirit of God. And finally, a tender conscience is powerful. A tender conscience can be our motivation. It can be one of the, the buoys in the waterway that, that guide our behavior and conduct. A conscience isn't everything, but the conscience can be a powerful determining factor in the kind of life that we lead as believers. 
Your conscience is the part of your soul that attaches itself to the highest standard of good you know. Well, all right, got to move on here. Back to our story. Now it's time for the big reveal, Genesis chapter 45. And in chapter 45 is when Joseph can contain himself no longer. It's, it's here he decides his mind games have accomplished their purpose. The collective conscience of the brothers has been pricked, and they have seen the error of their ways. Verse 1 of chapter 45, Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. He sent away his staff. He sent away his servants, all the Egyptians. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the, in the house of Pharaoh heard. The Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh. The Egyptians in the next room heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Move that bus. Actually, he said, I am Joseph. Does my father yet live? And his brethren, the Bible says, it says this right in the Bible, his brethren could not answer him. Does your father yet live? And Joseph said unto his brothers, Come near me, I pray you. And they came and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into Egypt. I can't imagine what the brothers were thinking. It seems as though they had no inkling. Now Joseph could thrive in his adversity. Because he never saw God as the problem. He knew who God was. He knew the character of God. To quote a worship song, In the silence, in the waiting, still we can know you are good. Verse 5, Joseph says, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me here. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and yet there are five in which there shall be no earing, no earing of corn, and no harvest. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives for a great deliverance. Joseph is able to see God's purpose in all the adversity. And now he turns his attention to the future. He dreams of a day where he can move his family to the land of Egypt and he can provide for their needs and be reunited with his father. And verse 9 says, Haste, go up to my father, he says to his brothers, and say to him, Thus saith your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not, and you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near unto me, and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have 
Verse 13, And you shall tell my father, Joseph says to his brothers, Tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall make haste and bring down my father hither. And Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck. And he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers. And he wept upon them. And the understatement of all time, after that his brothers talked with him. (laughs) Verse 25. They went up out of Egypt. And they came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father. They told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he's governor over all the land of Egypt, and Jacob's heart fainted, and he believed them not. And they told him of all the words of Joseph, and, 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 he, and what he had said unto them. And when Jacob saw all the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel, or Jacob, said, It is enough. My son Joseph is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now there's an untold part of this story that I never realized before. There's there's a part left out. I mean, of all the detail of this story, there's there's 13 chapters to the story of Joseph in the fast-moving book of Genesis where only... Two chapters are devoted to all of creation. Thirteen chapters to the story of Joseph. And yet there's a part left out. There's a part left to our own imagination. It's the brothers having to tell Jacob of what happened all those years before when they deceived him into thinking their brother Joseph was dead. Think of the pain that Jacob had endured. For more than two decades, he lived with the grief of Joseph's violent death, supposedly at the hand of a wild animal. I imagine it was a long journey from Egypt back to Canaan for the brothers, knowing that upon arrival, they would have to tell Jacob the truth. Perhaps this was the big reveal. As for us, as for you, and as for me, the big reveal is when our sin is presented in full view of our Father, our Heavenly Father. Think of the pain that Jacob endured as a result of the deception from his sons. Now think of the pain our sin causes our Heavenly Father. His son Jesus did not deserve the cross. We did. Our deception, our greed, our lust, our pride led to the sacrifice of Jesus and the grief of the Father. It's the story of Joseph all over again. And if there's a bad guy in the story, it's the brothers. And we're the brothers. And repentance is the long trip from Egypt back to Canaan, back to the Father, to lay out our sin before Him in full view.
Maybe that's why we don't hear about the brothers confessing to Jacob, their father. Maybe God wants us to have to find our own way to confront him. The sin in the cup, or the, the, the cup in Benjamin's sack represents sin. Judah stood in the gap, was willing to pay the price. The brothers make the long trip back. What are we going to tell Dad? How, how do we explain this to our father? That for 20 years he's grieved the loss of his favorite son. It was our deceit. It was our lie. His pain was because of us. How, how do we tell dad that? How do we bring that up? I think we need to ask that question as we walk our road with God. If we want to live in victory, then at some point, and, and again and again along the way, we have to be in full view of our Father. God, this is, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I think that's a lot harder than we realize. But I know this. And as the story will play out in the next couple weeks, we'll see these relationships restored. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. And, it, and whatever your sin might be, if you'll have the courage to bring it before the Father in full view, He's a merciful God. He's patient, long-suffering. He wants nothing more than to hear from you. But for the sin to be concealed will be your own undoing. And so this morning, it's Communion Sunday. We celebrated communion. We talked about what it means to confess our sins. That's what I'm asking you to do as we close our service today. Would you bow with me? Lord, we acknowledge again that we're sinners. But Lord, it can't just be said in a sentence like that. I mean, could Joseph's brothers say it in one sentence like that to Jacob and be done with it? I don't know. I, I, that long trip back from Egypt to Canaan land, to the presence of the Father speaks to me of repentance, this agonizing time where we, we realize our sin will be laid before the Father in full view. Oh God. Oh God, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Lord, we thank you that you're that you're so forgiving. Lord, how can, you, how can you be so patient with me? So Lord, we just, we just thank you for Jesus. 
Judah was a picture of him there. Let Benjamin go. I'll pay the price. Jesus did that for us. Nailed to a cross. His body whipped, scourged, chunks of flesh torn from it. Nails driven into his hands, a crown of thorns pressed into his brow. Humiliated and shamed, and he didn't deserve any of it. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, as you give your neighbor privacy and you focus on my words in these closing minutes. So how do we apply that to our lives? I think it starts with acknowledging that we're a sinner. If you think you're good enough, I think you're in trouble. The Bible teaches very clearly that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If your life is anything like mine, then it's just common sense. Second, we confess our sins. We make our sins known. Just like the brothers before their father Jacob. Dad, here's here's what happened. This isn't going to be easy to hear. Here's what happened. And then we repent. We turn from our sin. We can't continue living the same way and Pretend that we've repented. Pretend that we've been impacted by the reality of forgiveness. Can't keep hurting Jacob, their father, over and over again. Something has to change. So we turn away from our life of sin and we turn to God. We receive Him. The Bible says, to as many as receive Him, He gives the power to become a children of God. That tells me we're not all children of God. You become a child of God. We receive what he did for us on Calvary's cross. We receive the payment, the penalty for our sins that we might be made righteous in the sight of God. If that describes you today, if that's, what, if that's the process you want to invoke by surrendering to Jesus, then I would invite you to slip up your hand. As you slip up your hand, you're not joining our church. This isn't a membership class. You're just saying, Tom, I need Jesus. I need my sins washed away. I'm lost without Jesus. I need my sins washed away. I see hands going up all over the auditorium. Someone else this morning, you need Jesus. God bless you. I see that hand in the middle. Someone over here on my left, God bless you. Someone else today. Church, would you pray with me? Would you pray for the one that's struggling with this decision? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to breathe life into them, to give them the courage. God bless you here in the front. Thank you, Jesus. Someone else today, you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. God bless you in the center. Thank you. Someone else today. Lord, we give you thanks for those that have received you today. I pray that something that was said today would point out the seriousness of sin how it grieves the Father's heart. And we have to take that difficult road back, that road of repentance back. How are we going to tell? It breaks my heart 
to tell God that I fall short. And then he sweeps us into his loving arms as we confess our sin. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Judah that stood in the place for Benjamin, a type of Christ as Jesus stands in our place. Suffered and died. The righteousness of the law satisfied in Jesus. My penalty paid so that I can go free. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.